WLIW-FM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. Welcome to WLIW-FM In Conversation. I'm your host, Diane Michelli, General Manager of WLIW-FM, and with me is East End resident Howard Marks, Co-Chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a global investment firm. Thank you for joining us, Howard. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the economy. At a time when the markets seem volatile to most everyday investors, tell us in simple terms how Oak Tree Capital approaches investments and the six tenants that make up the Oak Tree philosophy. Well, uh, I, maybe I'll just rattle off the tenants first and then come back to the one that bears on the economy. We have six tenets. The first is that the mark of the professional investor is risk control. It's easy to make money in the market. It doesn't feel like it at the moment. Uh, but over time, it's it's easy to make money, and it's particularly easy in the good years, and seven or eight out of every 10 years are are good years. So that's not the challenge. To In my opinion, the challenge is making money in the good years with the risk under control so that you don't lose as much as others in the bad years. Mm-hmm. Our motto is if we avoid the losers, the winners take care of themselves. Number two, consistency. Our clients don't want to be at the top of the heap. They don't certainly don't want to be at the bottom of the heap. They're perfectly happy to be just above the middle most of the time, and then substantially better than others in the bad times, which I think is uh, when people want to see superior performance. And if you can just do that, you'll be above average over full cycles with below average volatility and with uh, a, a good performance in the bad times, which is when most people get upset, and you'll have happy clients, which I think we do. Number three, uh, we're only interested in what the professionals call less efficient markets, uh, the more efficient the market is, the more it is followed and understood and researched and accepted, uh, the more likely it is that securities will be priced about right. And it's hard to beat those markets. That's why index funds have been doing so well in recent uh, decade or two. There are markets which are less understood, less efficient. That's where we prefer to work. Number four, we practice a high degree of specialization. We don't do everything. We try to do a, a few things and do them exceptionally well. Now, getting around to your question, number five is that our decisions are not based on macro forecasts. We don't believe in economic forecasts. We don't make economics forecasts. We don't have an economist. We don't invite economists in for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to know more than other people about companies, industries, and securities, not economies, markets, currencies, commodities, interest rates, the things that really nobody is superior at predicting. Number six, we're not market timers. We don't get in and get out and get in and get out. Nobody can do that well. Uh, we, we do vary the degree of aggressiveness versus defensiveness uh, with which we pursue our markets. But uh, trying to get out to avoid a market decline and then being smart enough to get back in uh, at the right time. Very, very difficult. Uh, for the most part, uh, I'm not a believer in it. So Oak Tree Capital started 25 years ago, and you've been following this philosophy with your help ever since. You also have a set of specific business principles that yes. go along with this philosophy. What are those key principles, 
And why are they important as our listeners think about investing, especially in an economy like the one we have right now? Well, thank you for asking about those, uh, Diane, because they're very important to us. Uh, Not so many people ask about them. The business principles define the kind of company we want to work at. And as you say, when we started up, we wrote out the investment uh, philosophy, which is uh, not that uncommon. It's not universal, but it's not uncommon. And then we wrote out the business principles, which I think is uncommon. And basically they say, you know, we stand for uh, avoidance of conflicts of interest vis-a-vis our clients. When they arise, we acquit them in the client's favor. We want to have a harmonious uh, work environment where people are happy, which is apolitical, non-hierarchical. Um, uh, we, we stand for candid communications, and uh, uh, we don't uh, make excuses when we make a mistake. We don't take credit for successes that are accidental. Um, uh, we've recently added one on responsibility, and we believe that we have a responsibility to the planet and its inhabitants, in addition to our clients, to try to make the environment uh, better and uh, to build a diverse uh, workforce and an environment in which everybody can succeed. And, you know, and we say that if we do these things, we think we'll be successful. And if we don't do them, we don't think we deserve to be successful. We're very happy with the kind of organization that that these things have produced. I read on your website, Oak Tree specializes in what you term alternative investments. What are alternative investments and why? Why alternative investments? Um, you know, I came into the investment business in 1969. And investing at that time meant stocks and bonds. And, you know, there were exceptions, but not prominently. Over the subsequent 53 years, lots of things have grown up that we didn't know about or talk about in 1969. Private equity, private credit, venture capital, distressed debt investing, emerging markets, REITs. You know, nowadays there's a, there's a whole menu to choose from. And alternative is the new word that sprung up maybe 20 years ago or so. It's the category. It's, every, it's really everything except mainstream stocks and bonds, and that's what we do. We do several of the things that I just listed off, and uh, we think that these are, for the most part, the less efficient markets that I was talking about when I described the investment philosophy. Oak Tree is a global investment firm, but as we know, everything is local. So as you look at your business What do you see as the impact of the current economic state on the East End and our region? I'm not really an expert on the East End economy. You know, I mean, look, the East End has boomed in the last two to three years. It benefited from the the work-at-home movement. Uh, People thought this was a good place to work. They moved into their homes if they had them or with their relatives or friends uh, people looked around themselves. They said, you know, I love my house, but it could use another bathroom or another bedroom. And so they did construction. And, and so, some people said, I love it here. I'm going to move here, and but I'm going to upsize or upscale or something like that. So there's been a real boom, as you know, in property. And the prices have been very strong. And the inventory of, of things for sale is is really down, I'm told. Now, then you get into an environment more like this one when you have rising interest rates, which discourage 
uh, home buying because mortgages become more expensive uh, and you have uh, uncertainty about the economy and people worry about their profits, their jobs, et cetera. So clearly one of the most brilliant statements of, of science is, you know, what goes up must come down. So the things that go up the most, generally speaking, uh, go down the most, except of course, we all think that the East End uh, will benefit in the long run from a positive underlying secular trend. And so I'm confident that each, each high will be higher than the last high. It's just that there'll be lows in between, as, as for everything. This is WLIWFM In Conversation. I'm Diane Michelli, and we're speaking with East End resident Howard Marks, co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a global investment firm. One of the hallmarks of your 25 years with Oak Tree Capital is the memo by Howard Marks. This details your investment strategies and insights into the economy and is posted on the Oak Tree website. And I want to read a quote from Warren Buffett. When I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something and that goes double for his book. And we'll get to your books in a minute, but let's talk about the memo. What is the genesis of the memo by Howard Marks? Back in 1990, when I worked uh, in, in another place before we started Oak Tree, there were two events that happened in my world, and each one individually was interesting. The juxtaposition of the two I thought was really eye-opening, and so I wrote a memo about it, and it was called The Route to Performance, and that was 32 years ago, and, uh, you know, I've been writing them ever since, and I, I write for my own enjoyment, but, uh, you know, it helps to get reinforcement from people who, who are glad to read them. It happens that in the first 10 years, uh, not only did I did nobody say, oh, I, that was great. Nobody ever said, oh, I got it. <laughs> it, it this was in the old days of, of snail mail. And it felt like I was uh, typing them up and folding them and putting them in envelopes and addressing to my clients and putting stamps on and then throwing them in the trash uh, because there was no response. But I kept doing it anyway, I assume, because I enjoyed it and thought I had something to say. But, you know, going back to that first memo, I met with a client of mine who had been running his company's pension fund for 14 years. And he was always in the second quartile of pension funds. He was never in the first quartile, the best, but he was also never below the midpoint in the third or fourth quartile. He was second quartile for 14 years in a row. So the question is, what did that make him for the 14 years? If you do, if you do second quartile for 14 years, do you end up in the second quartile? No, he was in the fourth percentile almost the best in the country, while never having one year above the second quartile. And that's the kind of math that works in our world. Most people don't understand it. It's a little mysterious, but it has to do with the avoidance of mistakes, like I talked about before. And then there was a money manager in New York that had a terrible year. They were a deep, what we call a deep value manager, and they invested very heavily in the banks that year, and the banks had a terrible year. So the president of the firm comes out, and he said, well, of course, if you want to be in the top 5% of money managers, you have to be willing to be in the bottom 5%. My reaction was, I have no interest in being in the top 5%, and my clients have no interest in being in the bottom 5%. I like the way the first person managed the money instead. So as you can sense, that gave rise to the tenet of our investment philosophy on consistency. Just a little bit above average every year 
and especially in the bad times, popping up to, to superiority, that's a good formula, and that's the one we pursue. And what are some of the current topics that you cover in the memo? The last one uh, was called Bull Market Rhymes. You know, I'm, I'm a student of cycles, and a lot of what I write about is about cycles. My last book was called Mastering the Market Cycle, and it's something I'm very attentive to. And as I said, I don't believe in economic forecasts, uh, Diane. And one of the things I say is that we never know where we're going, but we sure as hell ought to know where we are. And I believe that understanding where we are in terms of the cycle can help us have a sense for whether the odds are stacked in our favor or stacked against us. So the last memo, Bull Market Rhymes, what that was about was the fact that there are certain phenomena, if you will, that we tend to see repeat over time. Uh, Mark Twain said, history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. And, uh, and I agree with that. So, you know, uh, when, when we have a bull market, that is a strong market, we tend to see a decline in people's selectivity and standards. Uh, you know, they get so excited about the money they can make that they forget to worry about the money they could lose. And this is, this is standard behavior that one has to gird against. You know, one of the things that, you see, that we see in bull markets, as I mentioned earlier, is that certain things and certain managers, one group of stocks or something is anointed, does the best, uh, gets all the ink, gets all the magazine covers, uh, people fall over themselves to, to get money with that manager and in that group. But then when the bull market turns to being a bear market, often that group does the worst. And when people see that, that a manager has his picture on the front page of a, of a newspaper because he had the highest return last year, most people don't understand that it doesn't have to be that they're skillful. It could be that they were aggressive at the right time. And I, I believe that very strongly that if you're aggressive at the right time, you don't need much skill. And yet, if you think about it, you don't want to invest in somebody because they were aggressive in 2020 and it turned out to be the right thing to do. You want to invest with people who have skill, which is replicable and can be relied on. Consistency. You know, so that was the essence of bull market rhymes. Back in December, I wrote one called Selling Out. Uh, when should you sell investments? And the interesting thing is, here I've been writing memos for 32 years, I never wrote one about selling before. In the investment world, if you go to school, I'll tell you, I went to Wharton and the business school at the University of Chicago, they never taught us about when to sell, only when to buy. A big question for investors. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it, it's half the deal. You buy, then you sell. You buy, then you sell. And you have to sell as often as you buy. You can't just buy, buy, buy. Sometimes you have to sell. But people never write about it or talk about it. So I, I wrote a memo called Selling Out. And, and I enjoyed that one. I like to write about things that other people haven't, haven't tackled. Well, as I mentioned, you're an author. But as Warren Buffett mentioned, of one book, but not one book, three books on investing, the most important thing, uncommon sense of the thoughtful investor, the most important thing, illuminated uncommon sense for the thoughtful investor, and mastering the market cycle, getting the odds on your side. What are the top level takeaways from your books? Well, as I, as I mentioned, I do believe that 
if you know what's going on around you, if you know where we stand in the, in the, in the various cycles, it helps you understand how to position your portfolio. Think about a cycle, what, it, what the picture looks like. It's kind of a sine wave, and it rotates around a central, what, what a statistician calls a central tendency. We call that central tendency, if you're looking at the stock market, for example, fair value. Sometimes things that sell at fair value, not very often. Uh, usually they sell above or below fair value. And it's possible through a lot of work to have a sense for whether things are selling above or below fair value. That is to say, it's possible to have a sense for how much optimism is embodied in, in asset prices. And if you know how much optimism is in prices, then you pretty much know what to do. Because if, if people are gaga over stocks and uh, incorporating a pie in the sky uh, psychology, you probably don't want to be part of that. If people are depressed and suicidal and they think that things will never go up again and if there's no optimism in security prices, well, that means they're probably cheap. That's probably a good time to buy. So that's the kind of reasoning that we employ. Most of it falls under the heading of contrarianism. I should mention that the book, The Most Important Thing, there are 21 chapters and each one is headed, the most important thing is, and then it's a different thing. Because in investing, there is no one most important thing. There are a lot of important things that you have to keep in mind. So the, so the, the, uh, the title is, is, is a bit of a trick, if you will. <laughs> in my world, that's what passes for clever. So contrarianism is one of those 21 things. And there are lots of others. Another one, I'm, I'm working on a memo now, and it talks about uh, what I label second-level thinking. You know, everybody on average thinks at the first level. The goal in investing is to make more money than the other person. By the way, this is an important thing for me to note. If you're happy with average performance, it's really easy to get it. All you have to do is go into an index fund or something like that. The costs are extremely low. Uh, if you go into an S&P 500 index fund, you're guaranteed to get the performance of the S&P 500 stock index. It may be good. It may be bad. It may be the right index to emulate or the wrong one, but it's a guarantee. So what we call active investing, which is picking stocks, getting in, getting out, overweighting this group or that industry or something like that. These are the hallmarks of what we call active investing. In my profession, the goal is to be above average because people who produce average performance don't get paid much. If you want to be a successful money manager, you have to try to be above average. But in order to do so, you can't think like the average person. You have to think at a higher level of sophistication, more deeply, more complex subjects, and your, your conclusions, to some extent, have to be different from the conclusions of what we call the crowd or the herd or the pack or the consensus. If, if you're not different in some way, how can you outperform? No, you have to be different in some way. That goes to your alternative investing philosophy. Well, that, that's part of it. Yes, that's right. We yeah. do things that other people mm -hmm. don't do for the most part. Right. But it's important to note, Diane, that just being different is not enough. You got to mm -hmm. be different and better. If you're different and, and worse, different and wrong, that's a formula for disaster. So the, the second level thinker is different and better. 
And by the way, by definition, it's not easily achieved. And, and I think that one of the things I want to stress to your listeners today is nobody should think this is easy. And when I got through having lunch with Charlie Munger, Warren's partner, uh, when, when the most important thing was about to come out, as I got up to leave the table, he said, now just remember, none of this is meant to be easy, and anybody who thinks it's easy is stupid. Hmm. And Charlie is fairly direct. And, uh, but it's true. I mean, we're talking about money, and, and, and the people who get it right are going to make more money than the other people. How can that be easy? Everybody's trying really hard to be the one who makes more money. So, so being that one just can't be easy. So you have to think at the second level. What's an example of that? The first level thinker says, Ford's about to bring out a great new Mustang. We should buy the stock. The second level thinker says, everybody knows that. It's already reflected in the stock price. It's not a reason to buy. The first level thinker says, this is a great company. We should buy the stock. The second level thinker says, it's a great company, but it's not as great as everybody thinks. We should sell the stock. So it's, as I say, contrarianism. Uh, when we were kids, I think we used to call that reverse psychology, as I recall. <laughs> it should be obvious, although it's not obvious to everybody, that if you want to be superior, you have to be different. Sounds like there's a lot to dive into into your books. And you are an author, a writer, obviously, but what are you reading these days and would recommend to our listeners? I have two books underway, one serious, one lighter. Uh, one is called The Stall House, S-T-A-H-L, and it's about a modern house that nonfiction, it's that a young married couple took it upon themselves to build in the Hollywood Hills of California. Uh, I lived in California for 34 years, so I, I like to read about it. And it became one of the iconic modern houses of the 20th century. Um, mm. Out in California, we had what were called that the case study houses, and the stall house mm -hmm. was one of them. The other book I'm reading is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And, <laughs> and it's about, it's about self-delusion, uh, because self-delusion is such a big part of most people's uh, M.O., uh, and, you know, yes. how do people do things that the rest of us think are absolutely abhorrent? How do they, you know, uh, give up their morals, if they have any, to fleece other people? How do they justify it to themselves and so forth? And, and, and the answer is it has to be based on self-delusion. So uh, the, the two books are, are a great combination at this time. Sounds like you have some good reading ahead of you and sounds like two good books to look into. Thank you for those recommendations. And your wife, Nancy, is an artist and also an author. The two of you have given a number of gifts to, you mentioned your alma mater before, University of Pennsylvania, including an endowment to start the Marks Family Center for Excellence in Writing at Penn Arts and Sciences. And you're a businessman. Why such an emphasis on writing education and skills? Well, first of all, Back about 15 years ago, when Penn was kicking off a capital campaign, I was sitting next to the provost at the kickoff dinner, and I told him about the fact that when I was at Wharton, they had the enlightened requirement that you had to have a non-business minor, and I took Japanese studies for my non-business minor, wow. and the, the, the teacher was a very, very demanding uh, of writing, and he did a great deal to make me the writer that I am today. I told the provost this story. He says, well, you got to cut it out with giving money to Wharton. It's time to do something for the arts and sciences. 
And so uh, I looked around and I found out that there, is a, there was a writing center on campus, under-resourced, uh, and it, it did two interesting things. It helped good writers become great writers, and it helped kids who got to college not knowing how to write in a remedial sense. Mm-hmm. And so I, I first funded the remedial part. So important. And I, think, I thought that was extremely important. And then as time passed, you know, I, I got such great psychic returns from funding the center that I eventually funded the whole thing, including the directorship. I, I, I stress writing uh, a great deal. Uh, when my son went off to college, I said, look, there are so many things in, in the world that are beyond our control. One of the things we can control is the quality of our output. Just do the best you can. Make sure that everything you turn in is the best you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's a great writer. And I think, you know, part of it is, is for that reason. And in, in this day and age, especially of digital everything, it drives me crazy when people, you know, say you are using the letters U and R, you know, all those nutty things that people do. It's so easy to distinguish yourself because so many people are letting it slide. Well, I think that's great advice to do your best, especially in communicating and writing and everything else we do, correct? Right, exactly. I like to, and I like to stress the fact that no idea, no suggestion is any better than the action which is taken on it. So if you have a great idea, but you can't persuade anybody to follow it, it's no good. And, and being able to speak or write is a way to persuade people of your point of view. Well, that's great advice and great of you to support that kind of work at the university level. This is WLIWFM in conversation. I'm Diane Michelli, and we're speaking with East End resident Howard Marks, co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a global investment firm. You mentioned earlier keeping the planet sustainable. And as an East End resident, one of the organizations that you are involved with is the Peconic Land Trust, which is a nonprofit organization focused on the protection of Long Island's working farms, natural lands, and heritage. You and your wife, Nancy, are a part of the Trustees Council, which works to support and advise the Peconic Land Trust. Tell us a bit about the organization and your work with and support of the Peconic Land Trust. Well, look, those of us who live out here know it's a special place. There's something called progress, and progress usually involves turning special places into unspecial places, uh, building them up, reducing the zoning and getting rid of the farms and getting rid of the plants and trees and so forth and paving them over. You know, I believe very strongly that solving any problem begins with acknowledging the problem. If you want to keep the East End the special place, it's not going to happen by itself. So uh, Nancy and I think it's a great way to spend money. And as you say, the Peconic Land Trust is a wonderful organization dedicated to preserving the specialness of what we have. And in particular, they try to preserve land for farming. They try to keep it out of the hands of developers by finding people who have land who are willing to sell it, not to the highest bidder, which is usually, you know, in in the real estate industry, we invest in real estate at Oak Tree, there's a saying, the, the, the highest and best use, which means to the real estate industry, the, the use that will produce the highest price for the land or for the building which is built on it. And the point is making money isn't everything. 
can't be everything. Well, I mean, it can be everything, but then you know, you can't expect the, the other things to to survive. So if if a farmer has a hundred acres, he wants to sell it. Invariably, some developer will be the the best buyer, and he'll come in and build two hundred houses. If you'd like to see that remain a farm, you have to a find a seller who doesn't necessarily care to garner the highest price, and you have to raise the money, and you have to encumber the land with provisions, legal provisions that keep it from being developed, and you have to then find a farmer. Farming is a tough business. You have to find somebody who's who's special because they want to turn the land into something. And these are the things that the Peconic Land Trust does. I'm, I'm so happy uh, to be part of, of what they do. You mentioned how special the East End is, and you, Nancy, and your family are committed to helping to protect its heritage and how special it is. What are your hopes for the future for the region, for the East End? You know, I don't want to be repetitive or, or negative, but I do think that slowing the thing that they call progress is extremely important. When you come out here and you see barns and you see farms, and, that the, and they're real farms, they're not gentlemen's horse farms, they're real farms where people grow crops and then you have the farm stands at the side of the road. You know, these are the things that we have to protect. Uh, and they, these are the things that make uh, our, our environment great. And uh, so our hope is to uh, retard progress a little bit. I don't think I know another way to say it. Thank you, Howard, so much for an insightful and enjoyable discussion. Well, thank you, Diane. And I encourage your listeners to invest, investing, investing early, staying with it is the most important thing. Not jumping in, jumping out, thinking you're a genius, that you could find the the best stocks and the best moment to get in or out. But if you get on board and you stay with it for a long time, the magic of what we call compound interest will make you a sure thing. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Howard. We really appreciate it. And this is WLIWFM In Conversation on 88.3 FM on the East End and at 96.9 FM in Western Suffolk with East End resident Howard Marks, co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management. You can listen to more episodes of WLIWFM In Conversation on our website at WLIW.org radio on the NPR One app, as well as other streaming apps and podcast platforms. And you can follow WLIWFM on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at WLIWFM. I'm your host, Diane Michelli, General Manager of WLIWFM. Thanks for joining us for this latest episode of WLIWFM In Conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of WLIWFM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. <laughs>